All right, good morning, Two Cities Church. How's everybody doing? Great. Yeah, it's been a busy weekend here for many reasons. One thing, uh, by the way, type two, turn to Mark chapter six. That's where we're going to be. If you're new, we are in a series on the gospel of Mark. And we've been in this series for about a little over a month now. We're going to be in this series for almost five months. We're going to be in this series until Christmas. And so here's what I want to tell you. If you are new and you've been coming around for a while, and I met you, I met you outside before after service, and you told me, you said, hey, we started coming around during the Mark series. And I said, that's great. Or you said, I started coming around during the David series, and we said that's great. Let me just tell you this one. I want to be honest. I want you to understand our church. You won't get everything that you could out of our series if you're not in a community group, right? We've got like 100 community groups that meet all over our city. And our community groups, by the way, are where we work it all out. It's, it's about alignment. Man, we're all kind of doing this together. And it's also about application. We're all trying to apply these texts, apply these sermons, apply these scriptures to our lives more faithfully. So uh, listen, if you're not in a community group, you may say, how do I get in the community group? You have to go through our weekender. You go, Kyle, when's the next weekender? I'm so glad you asked, okay? The next weekender is this coming weekend, uh, September 16th and 17th. That's a Friday and a Saturday. And uh, listen, uh, last night we had 11 spots left because we have, well, now we have 83 people, so we have seven spots left. Here's why we have only 90 spots, because uh, now we do our weekenders. We actually put round tables in here. And uh, what we found out is that with serving and staff and everything else, we can only fit about 90 new people in here. So we got seven spots left. Uh, you came to the nine o'clock service instead of the 11 o'clock, so you have a chance to get in, okay? So uh, whether you wanna go online to our website or outside to our welcome tent, you can sign up there. So that's exciting, but I'm excited about even something more than that, okay? And normally I'm excited because of who's here or what's happening here, but I'm actually excited this weekend because of who's not here this weekend, which is all of our middle schoolers and all of our high schoolers and all of our college students, they are at, yes, we planned two retreats at the same time. It's kind of crazy because almost all of our staff has gone this weekend as well. Uh, but let me show you a couple pictures, guys. We have a middle school retreat. Look at that. That's, that's our main man, Tyler, teaching uh, all of the students there. That's really exciting. Let's show you another picture here. We got another one of some middle schoolers sitting outside, middle schoolers and high schoolers. There's some things they do together and separate, and then one more. All right, so we got that going on. That's really exciting because, I mean, you know, where, what were you doing when you were 11 or 12, right? We know that from 12 to 18, those are unbelievably formative years. We also believe in moments. We believe in milestones. We believe in mountaintop experiences. And we think that God uniquely uses camps and conferences and retreats in special ways, okay? And so they are there right now. Also, there's a college retreat. Let me show you two pictures from that. Uh, here's one. That's Johnson, one of our staff, teaching them. And then check this out. One more picture here. Uh, they gave them a lot of free time, but they said, hey, guys, during the free time, if you want to, uh, Johnson's also going to be teaching an apologetics class, and that's who showed up during the free time. Okay, yeah, that's Wake Forest students for you, right? Yes. Uh, guys, what we're gonna do is, like, listen, we are going to pray. This is cool. We're going to pray. We did last night too. We're going to pray for them right now because they're still there. And uh, as you know, we need to pray for the student leaders because these student leaders, I mean, they probably got four hours of sleep, right? Uh, and they, uh, well, here's, here's one of the last encouraging things, especially in our student ministry, guys. We have 43, I believe, student leaders uh, in, or, or not just students, sorry, not, uh, just leaders in general, leader, like uh, members of our church who are serving in students. Here's what that means, that we have a three to one ratio in our, in our student ministry, which means that we can give the, the care and the investment in the discipleship that these students from sixth grade to 12th grade desperately need. So let's pray for them, and then we're gonna dive into the Gospel of Mark, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just right now, we lift up all of these students, over 200 students across our middle school, high school, college ministry. We thank you. We know that for some of them, especially these middle schoolers, they're probably nervous. They're making their own decisions about whether they're going to embrace the values and the faith of their family. 
And we just, we pray for every person to make it personal this weekend. We pray for so many college students, there's so many freshmen. And we know, we've, we know this from our own experience, from the experience of our kids, that the first six to eight weeks of college is, the cement is very wet, but it's hardening very quickly. And we pray that this would be for both our, our middle school, high schoolers and our college students, this would be a weekend they look back to and they said, you know, we, we drew a line in the sand. We made some commitments, we made some decisions and we're changed because of it. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, type two, turn two. I told you Mark chapter six. I can't catch us up on the last five chapters. Uh, Spencer did a fantastic job last week. Uh, you go back and listen to that sermon or any of the sermons uh, if you wanna catch up. Let me tell you where we are. Uh, Jesus, we're looking at his life, uh, the most famous person in all of human history. We're looking at the man, the message, the mission, the ministry of Jesus. And kind of the big theme, if you haven't picked it up, okay? Because it's hard, there's lots of things. Sometimes it's hard to see. You don't wanna get lost in the trees. You wanna see the whole forest. Okay, so let me kind of tell you the forest of, of chapters one through six. It's all about Jesus's authority. Have you noticed that? Like he teaches and people are like, he has authority. Now sometimes it's his authority over the natural realm. Like he's like calms the storm. That was in chapter four. Sometimes it's his authority over the spiritual realm, right? He could cast out demons. So it's usually, it's either his authority in the seen realm, which that's what we can see, or the unseen realm, right? Even his ability to call disciples, to leave everything, to follow him shows his authority. And the big question in Mark so far, and you can see this with different people is, how are you going to respond to authority, right? Now, first of all, you might just go, what is authority? It's hard, hard to describe, right? What is authority? It's something like the ability to get things done. Have you ever been like at a restaurant and you were upset? Or at a hotel and you were upset? Or at a business and you were upset and you went and you tried to talk to somebody? And you're talking to them for a few minutes and then you have this thought in your head, maybe you say it's them. You're not an authority. Because you realize this person has no ability to change anything. This person has no power. Jesus has all power in heaven and on earth. And so the question is gonna be, what, what, what should you do in response? It's like, you should worship, right? I mean, even on the human level, when you meet a great person, like a great person, no one's perfect. You meet a great person and they also have a lot of authority, maybe just in one domain or one sphere. If you're a normal human being, you would like to get to know that person. You would like to follow that person. You would like to learn from that person in appropriate ways that you would do in a human relationship. How much more would Jesus? And so what we saw so far is we've seen Jesus has done, it depends on how you count them. So far in five chapters, he's done at least 10 miracles. Not, not, to, not to also go over all of his great teaching. And, and so far we've seen people either respond in faith or lack of faith. We've seen people either be full of belief or be full of unbelief. So last week, Spencer did a great job, told us two stories of Belief. The woman who'd been bleeding, she saw the authority of Christ, she ran to and she believed. We saw Jairus and his daughter and, and full of faith. And so here's the question today, we're gonna just ask this question, we're asking this question in the whole series. It's like, what are you gonna believe Jesus for? Do you know how important faith is? Here's what faith is. Faith is, I give you lots of different definitions. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. Theologians, they say that faith is the instrument. They like words like that. Faith is the instrument that connects us to Christ, right? What does the Bible say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does Jesus say at one point to one person? He says, let it be done according to your faith. What does the Bible say? The righteous will live by faith. So in one sense, what we've been looking at is faith in this whole series and the life of Jesus. But today we're gonna see three stories of a lack of faith. We're gonna see three stories of unbelief because sometimes what you have to see is you have to see this opposite of something to understand what it really is. And so what we're gonna see is we're gonna see Jesus go home and they don't believe. We're gonna see Jesus send out his disciples and they don't believe. 
we're gonna see John the Baptist at an elite party with Herod, and they don't believe. So let's look at these together. First, turn with me to chapter six, verse one. Here's what it says in chapter six, verse one. He, that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So Jesus goes home. Um, We know it's roughly about a 25 mile journey, which would be pretty far back then. And he goes home to, if you know where he's from, he's from Nazareth, right? Now that's not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. We know that, we celebrate that every Christmas. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Some of you have that experience. Like you were born somewhere, be like, I'm not really from there, right? You're from like where the vast majority of your childhood is, okay? Now let me ask you this question. What's it like for you to go home? Some of you go, I never left. Some of you are like, I grew up in Winston and I went to Wake Forest and I got a job here and I never left. Okay, well, that's its own experience. A lot of us, especially in a transient culture, what we have happen is that we, get, we leave for a season and then we come back. We left for college, we left for career, we left, we had some kids, we came back. And it's a weird experience to come back home, especially the smaller your town is, right? So Jesus is from a town we know by the size of the well, about 100 people. And it's a very religious context and you know, things change a lot now, but back then things didn't change very quickly. So Jesus comes home and, well, a lot's changed in his life. He's no longer the carpenter. He's now an itinerant preacher. He's now got followers. And we're gonna see how people respond. Now, what I want you to see at the end of verse one, I don't wanna skip over like some of the most, I don't know, you might say most basic things in, in the text. So do you see at the end of the verse, it says, Jesus went home and his disciples followed him. It's like, well, what do disciples do? They follow Jesus. See, what we're trying to do here, and we just say this all the time, and I say it till I'm sick of saying it, and I say it until you're sick of me saying it, okay? Um, which is probably right, right about now. <laughs> which is that the, the goal of a Christian, the, the, well, not even just the goal, what a Christian is, is somebody who's following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus. That's why it's even good to think of yourself not so much as a Christian. Of course, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. But when I find myself in a very secular space, so when I, I thought some of you know this, I was spent four years at Duke, doing ministry, uh, didn't find it super helpful at Duke to tell people I was Christian. They've heard that, they've seen that, they, they have their own ideas of what that is. It was more helpful for me to say I'm a follower of Jesus. I never heard anyone say that. Or I'm a disciple of Jesus, it's the same thing. But I think the same thing happens in very religious contexts, which is at least the old Winston, a very religious context where everybody says they're a Christian in name. But most people's Christianity, here's what most people think Christianity is, especially Winston's own. They think it, it's I show up and I listen to sermons and I sing songs that make me feel a certain way on the inside, and I get one hour free of childcare. And we thank God for the kids' ministry. And we are so unbelievably grateful for such a great worship team, and I hope you get a decent sermon. But I just wanna be very, very clear that, that Christianity is not, I listen to sermons, I sing songs, I have feelings inside, and I get some free childcare, and I have some friends that are nice. Christianity is I'm following Jesus, and I'm helping others find and follow Jesus. And if you're not doing those, this, if you're not following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus, I don't know how else to say this, as nicely as I can, as spirit-filled, Christ-centered, winsomely as I can. I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian, because that's what a Christian does. Okay, so verse one, that's what they're doing. Okay, the disciples, they're following Jesus. Now, let's look at verse two. It says this, look where Jesus leads them. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Jesus leads them to church. What an amazing idea. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, look, they start asking questions. This is Jesus' hometown. They start asking questions. They ask three questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So he shows up and things have changed and people don't understand. They're trying to figure it out. Why is he such a great teacher? And look what they do. Here's how they try to describe it. Verse three, uh, we're gonna camp out here for a little bit. Here's what it says. 
is this not the carpenter? So they think about him only in terms of his occupation. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of, and it seems like Mary and Joseph love names that ended with J. Do you see this? <laughs> Jesus, Joseph, Judas, James, and then finally Simon. Finally, we ran out of J names. Simon, okay. And are not his sisters, now we, now, so we know, here's what we know, right? This is helpful to know because sometimes we, we have a view of Jesus that we don't understand he had a very human experience. So here's what we know. Jesus had four brothers, their names, and Jesus has at least two sisters. We don't know how many. Could it be three or four or five sisters? It could. So here's what we know. And then also look here. It says this. Um, are not his sisters here with us? So here's what we know. Jesus shows up. He's teaching in a local synagogue, and we don't know if his brothers are there, but his sisters are sitting there. And it says this. And they took offense at him. Here's what happens. Jesus goes home, and people cannot understand his divinity. They only understand his humanity. And part of being a Christian, and part of what we're doing each week, like why are we walking through whole books of the Bible? Why do I preach for 40 or 50 minutes? Why do we ask you to keep coming back? It's because there's a lot of things to learn. And part of what we're doing together is we're just kind of like building a city in our mind and our hearts of all of the truth of scripture. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to realize, wait a second, sometimes I'm believing one thing and I also need to believe something else at the same time. So I'll give you an example. A couple weeks ago, I was up here and I was talking about the baptism of Jesus and I just took about five or 10 minutes and I said, hey guys, hold on. Let's just talk about how the life of Jesus is as important as the death of Jesus. Remember I said that just because, the reason I said that is because, well, if you've been in church for a while, you're always talking, we're always singing about the cross, we're singing about the resurrection, all hail King Jesus, I get it, I love it. Or you're thinking about Christmas, right? We're talking about the birth of Jesus. The only thing that we're forgetting is his entire life, okay? So we spent some time saying, okay, we gotta hold together the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're not, we're not gonna return to that. We have to hold together his humanity and his divinity. Now, here's what happens in churches that are theologically liberal, which is most churches that you're gonna see today. All, all the old big buildings, usually when you drive around different cities, they're, they're all what we call the mainline churches, and most of them, I'm not thinking of anyone church, but most of them have left the gospel. And what they've left is they've left the divinity of Christ, but they've tried to just hold on to the humanity of Christ, right? This is, they see Jesus as a good example. They see Jesus as a poor Galilean peasant who was a good teacher. They see Jesus as a religious leader. They only see his humanity. Now, I, here's what I think our problem is often in more what we would call evangelical churches, this team, tribe, tradition, whatever we're in here. We tend to think of the divinity of Jesus and we tend to forget his humanity. So look, okay, two things there. One, one, it says he's the carpenter. Do you notice the definite article, the? So here's what we have to understand. Back then, there weren't carpenters. There was a carpenter. Right? We're, we're kind of spoiled, right? It's like, uh, what lawyer do I want to go to? No, 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 not back then. There wasn't the lawyer, there was, or there wasn't a lawyer, there was the lawyer. Uh, there, there wasn't a butcher, there was the butcher. There wasn't a barber, there was the barber. If there was even barbers, I don't know how it works. <laughs> you get the point in principle, I'm trying to say. So Jesus, here's what this is interesting. Here's what we know about Jesus. He dignifies work, by the way. Some of you don't like your jobs, work's hard. Here's what we know, Jesus, somewhere between age 12 and age 15, we're getting this from just what happened in culture, he would go begin to work for his dad. So he doesn't enter full-time ministry until he's 30. So we've got 15 to 18 years of him being the carpenter. Okay. Now the carpenter, that, 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 that phrase is actually only used two times in the New Testament. Um, it actually is probably best translated builder. He, he probably didn't work with wood. There wasn't much wood around there. He was probably more of a stonemason. But here he is, he dignifies work. He's working with his stepdad. And, and then we see family, right? I mean, 
those are two things that are going to define your human experience, right? And that's why you want to try to get those right by the time you're about 30 or 35 years old. You want to figure out family, you want to figure out work, because you're going to be doing those two things for a long time. But, but here's what I want us to understand about Jesus. We cannot forget the humanity of Jesus. And here's, I think, the big thing about that we, need to, we don't need to let go of the divinity of Christ. We need to hold them both in our minds. Fully God, fully man. Here's what the humanity of Christ means for you practically. Jesus gets you. Jesus understands you. This is why the Bible talks about him being our great high priest who's acquainted with our weaknesses. I mean, think about this. Jesus lost a stepdad. He know, and we don't know exactly when. Sometime before, between age 12 and age 30, Jesus' dad, his stepdad, is no longer there. Have you ever lost someone close to you? Jesus understands. He also lost a good friend, Lazarus. Do you have close friendships? Jesus understands that. He had 12 good friends. Have they ever betrayed you? Jesus understands that. Have you ever been misunderstood? Jesus understands that. Have you ever been single in your 30s? Jesus understands that. And so it's just a really important uh, thing to understand. So it's like when you're tempted, you have to understand Jesus understands that. The Bible says Jesus was tempted because temptation and sin are not the same thing. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about temptation, which is an interesting thought. He said, Jesus understands temptation even better than us because here's what happens with us. We give in to temptation and then that temptation is over for that season. If you don't give in to temptation, it only increases in your life. And so Jesus actually understands temptation better than you understand temptation. Jesus had a fully human experience and suffered to the point of death, dying the most emotionally and physically painful death you can die. The word excruciating we get means from the cross. So this is why when you just look at, this is what's so powerful. So when you're dealing with some temptation in your life, you can both call on the divinity of Christ to help you say no, and you can say, you know what this is like. And it's really powerful because there's two ways to know something, right? You can know something by explanation, which is really helpful, and that's how we have to know a lot of things. Read this book, listen to this podcast, watch this YouTube video, take this class, and then you learn it by, well, you learn it by explanation. But what you really need to do is learn it by experience. This is what the medical community has figured out. Right? It's like, okay, we'll take your organic chemistry and take your medical school and all that. But by the time you get into residency, it's time. It's time. And if you need fellowship, you're going to need to learn these things by experience. So there's the humanity of Christ. There's also the divinity of Christ. Now, people have struggled with the divinity of Christ. There was something that came out years ago in the 70s called the Jesus Seminar. It was uh, very interesting. Basically, it was a bunch of, I know I keep talking about the theologically liberal Protestants, but that's what they were. Like, you know, professors that teach religion at universities, okay? Well, they got together and they said, let's figure out the historical Jesus. You ever heard of the historical Jesus? <laughs> if, you, if you take one religion class, you'll hear about the historical Jesus. And he's different than the Jesus of faith, they tell us. Or all you have to do is watch like one Discovery Channel documentary at Eastern, you'll hear about the historical Jesus. Well, anyway, what they did, is kind of interesting. They, this really happened. It sounds like a joke, but they got a bunch of guys in a room and they had four different color pebbles. And they read all of the red letters of the New Testament. And they threw one, I can't remember the colors. They threw one pebble in and they said, Jesus definitely said that. And they threw a different pebble in and they, Jesus maybe said that. They threw another pebble in and Jesus probably did not say that. And then they had a different color pebble for Jesus definitely did not say that. And what they found at the end, <laughs> unbelievable. What they found at the end, based on their research, was that only 18% of the red letters Jesus really said. Now here's what's interesting. A critic of the Jesus Seminar said, well, you know what's really interesting? When you tell me the Jesus of that 
he sounds like a theologically liberal Protestant professor. <laughs> because this is our temptation, right? Our temptation is to domesticate Jesus. Our temptation is to manage Jesus. Our temptation is to, see, God created us in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. But then we have to hold on to the divinity of Jesus, okay? And, and it's interesting because people have been, so Christians have been defending the divinity of Jesus. And actually early on, and I'm giving you a lot of background tonight, or this morning, but um, early on, there was these Gnostic gospels written by Christians. So the, they're not in our New Testament, they're not the word of God, they're not even probably fully true, or any true maybe. They were written in the 200s and the 300s, and, they were, and there's these things called the infancy gospels. Because people, you can understand this, people became very interested in Jesus from age, well, really, all, all we, really age you know, two to 30. Because all we get is one thing about him in the, in the New Testament at age 12. So they start telling these infancy gospel stories. And one of the stories says that Jesus, when he's a little kid, he does all these magic things, and he, he turns a clay dove into a real dove, and it flies away. My favorite story says that some kid was making fun of him, and this was when he was in third or fourth grade, and he turned him into a donkey, which is what you and I would do if we were the son of God, right, in third grade. But I, I show you this to say people have wrestled with how do we hold on to the divinity of Christ, he's real, risen, reigning, returning, and the humanity of Christ. And what you see, by the way, is greatness. And this is what I've been reading about this lately. When they look at great, the greatest people, the greatest people hold two extremes at one time. The greatest leaders are unbelievably kind, you know, but unbelievably direct. Great leaders are unbelievably optimistic and they're unbelievably realistic. Well, Jesus is the ultimate example. He's fully God and he's fully man. Now, Jesus is gonna interpret what, he's, what he and the disciples are experiencing. Look here at verse four. It says this, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them, verse six. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus basically tells something that we know. He's quoting a proverb of the day, and he says, listen, he says, a prophet is honored everywhere except his own house in his own hometown. So you have to ask a few questions. Well, what is honor? Honor is an interesting thing. Like, we don't really understand honor today. I mean, we live in like a super casual culture, right? No one even wants to be called like, don't call me Mr. Mercer. That was my dad's name, you know? Call me Kyle, right? That's, a, that's the casual culture. The casual, we don't respect parents, we don't respect pastors, we don't respect professors, we don't respect government, we don't respect bosses. We don't understand honor. Now what just happened with Queen Elizabeth, what's happening right now when Queen Elizabeth passed, what you're seeing is honor. That's what we're seeing there. When everybody's crying and King Charles steps up and they say, long live the king, what they're recognizing is that there's an office here. What they're recognizing is there's a history here. What they're recognizing is there's a weight here. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's interesting, if you look, Jesus, it says that where Jesus is not honored, he's not able to do any miracles. And you go, you know, theologically, right, you're trying to, if you're like me, you're trying to put it together, like, well, he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. Well, yes, that's true. We don't always understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together, but here's what we know, at least according to this passage, that 
a lack of honoring Jesus, which, by the way, we see at the end of verse 6 actually is a, is a form of unbelief, but a lack of honoring Jesus hinders Jesus' ability to work in your life. Now, here's what I want to talk about. Here's the principle of honor that I want us to get, and this is, I don't know where else, I mean, they'll be taught in other churches, but I don't know that you'll learn this anywhere else because this isn't taught today. The principle of honor is this. You honor up, honor goes up, and blessing flows down. That's the way God says, if you honor me, I will honor you. And when you honor Jesus, you get blessed. I don't mean the name it, claim it, gab it, grab it, you know, <laughs> blessings of, of health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean the good biblical blessings of life. Now, some of you know this, right? We, let's move on just for a second from, from Jesus' experiences. Some of you have experienced this, right? Some of you feel like, maybe you're the guy, maybe you're the girl, who you feel like, I am honored everywhere except my home. I go to work and they call me sir or ma'am, and I get bonuses, and I get promotions, and I ask someone to do something and they do it, and I have a role, and I have status, and I have influence, and I go home and I'm the village idiot. And I go home and my husband doesn't respect me. And I go home and my wife doesn't respect me, right? And I've seen this before, right? I think as a general rule, everybody needs to honor everybody, everybody needs to love everybody. I think as a general rule, kids learn love by watching their dad love their mom. And they learn, learn honor by watching their mom honor their dad. So every once in a while, if I hear like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid complain about his dad, my dad's lazy, my dad watches too much TV, my dad travels too much, here's what I know. He learned that from mom. Kids don't think that way. Kids learn to think that way because of how mom talks about dad or how dad talks about mom. Now, here's, what, here's the principle. If you don't honor somebody, now Jesus is the ultimate example of this. If you don't honor somebody, you can no longer receive from them. Let me tell you how this happened in the church world. <sighs> During COVID, all different churches, pastors had to make decisions about what to do with COVID. I don't want to talk about it, okay? But I'm talking about it just for a second. <laughs> but this is what happened at churches. A pastor did not make a sinful decision, but made a prudent decision. I don't even care which way, to do something with COVID. And some of the people in the church didn't like it. And they didn't like it, so guess what they don't like? They don't like him. And watch this. This is what happens. I've seen this so many times. All of a sudden, that pastor becomes a terrible preacher. Really? His sermons are probably getting better across time. Here's the principle. You can no longer receive from him. You have a root of bitterness toward him. This can happen with a wife, with her husband, a husband with a wife, a church member with a pastor, a student with a teacher. Jesus says, because you will not honor me, you cannot receive from me. And he calls it in verse six, if you look, it says he marveled. We only get two times in scripture we're told that Jesus marvels. He marvels at unbelief. Unbelief is, a good way to think about unbelief, it's the sin under every other sin. I mean, it's like, well, you know, if you're struggling with, we're all struggling with sins. We're all struggling with besetting sins, okay? But if, if you're trying to get to the heart of like, why do I, why do I do what I do? Or why don't I do what I want to do? One of the questions that you might ask is, well, what am I believing or what am I not believing that's causing me to do what I'm doing? Now, let me be clear here. Unbelief is different than doubt. Unbelief is a sin. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is often a sign of faith, right? If, if you've never doubted your Christian faith, you may not be a Christian. 
Because doubt is like, hey, I really believe this. I'm kind of leveraging my whole life on this. I kind of believe, I believe in heaven and hell, and I'm like raising my kids this way, and I'm giving money to this. And so I better make sure this is written. Now, 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 unbelief is a settled state. This is what Jesus is condemning. Unbelief is a settled state. Doubt comes and goes during different seasons, maybe during a trial, maybe during suffering, maybe something happens in your life. Unbelief challenges Jesus. Doubt asks Jesus, help me understand. Unbelief wants an answer to everything. Doubt says, I believe there's mystery. I believe God's bigger than me. I believe just because I don't understand it doesn't mean there isn't a reason. And so what we see with the disciples is the disciples doubt. They have different seasons. You're going to have different seasons of doubt. Now, but here's the thing I want us to kind of, and we'll move on to the next section here, but here's what I want us to finally think about. Jesus goes home, and it's the people who are most familiar with Jesus that are most filled with unbelief. And it makes me worry particularly about the church. It's like, well, where would Jesus be most familiar to people? The answer would be in here. Or if you want to go one more level, our kids. And so one of the roles of parents is how do I take what is familiar and make it fresh for our kids? Because here's what I found out with my kids. I've got a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, especially my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old. They can answer almost any basic question about the Bible. But what they're lacking, and it's partly because I'm lacking it, what they're lacking is awe. Like they can answer, yeah, Jesus walked on water. Yep, Jesus died for our sins. Yep, Jesus is returning. It's like, but there's no excitement. There's no wonder. Paul David Tripp said the job of a parent is to pass on to their kid awe. Isn't God awesome? Isn't God great? And so this is what we need to pray for for our kids that they don't become so familiar with Jesus that they no longer honor him and they no longer can receive from him. So Jesus, verse six ends with unbelief in Jesus' hometown. Now Jesus is going to send out the disciples. Look at me at verse seven. It says this, and he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. If you take notes in your Bible, you might want to write in this section what I just read, the first short-term mission trip ever. Some of you go, why is two cities so big on short-term mission trips? Why are they always asking me to go on a short-term mission trip? Why are we sending our middle schoolers and our high schoolers and our college students on short-term mission trips? Because it's biblical. You see this? See what Jesus does, by the way, this is a huge transition. This is gonna be the transition. Verse seven, all the commentators note this. This is the transition in the book from one person does all the ministry to many people do ministry. Up until this point, first five chapters, one person teaches. 
First five chapters, one person heals. First five chapters, one person does all of the discipling. From this point on in the book, Jesus moves to a season of preparation because he's getting his disciples ready to do ministry without him physically there. Jesus here has a multiplication mindset and it starts with a short-term mission trip. Why are short-term mission trips so important? Well, we don't know all the answers, but they tend to be a discipleship microwave for our faith. When, when people talk about the church in general, not just our church, when they talk about the American church, probably any church, but when they talk about the American church, they, they, they point out something very interesting. They say, you know, the people that tend to be most committed in any, in any church, that tend to be most all in in any church, they said there's two categories of people. They said, number one, it's usually the people who serve in the kids' ministry. And we all say, amen, right? Uh, and we don't know why. Is it, is it they're committed so they serve there or they serve there and they see the kids and God works in their heart and they're like super committed? We don't know, okay? But they said the second thing after kids' ministry is it's anybody who's ever been on a short-term mission trip anywhere. It's like, I don't know why. Does it just reorient your finances? It reorients your heart? It lets you see genuine spiritual poverty? I don't know. But I want you to know that our heart is to send out more and more short-term mission trips. We are gonna have four new short-term mission trips in the first six months of 2023. Our goal here is for every, and this is a logistical nightmare, but for everybody here, for everybody here to eventually go on a short-term mission trip and ideally to take your family. So, you know, we have this partnership in, with Compassion. I've already told the head of Compassion, hey, as soon as trips open up to Uganda, I wanna take my whole family. Because we just, we wanna go, yes, I've got a six-year-old, but we want them to see the world. We want them to see real poverty. We want them to see real ministry. Now, here's the goal of short-term mission trips. I just feel by implication and application, I wanna talk about this real quickly. Short-term mission trips have one main purpose. This is it to serve the people there who live there full-time ministering to those people. Does that make sense? So the point of a short-term mission trip is not to see the world, although you'll get to do that. The point of a short-term mission trip is not to hang out with your friends, although you'll get to do that. The point of a short-term mission trip is, hey, there are people living there long-term that have given their lives and learned a language and crossed an ocean and said goodbye to parents, and I'm here for one week and my job is to serve them, whatever I can do. What we're gonna see is also, we'll see this next week, Jesus calls them back from the short-term mission trip and they have evaluated experiences where he helps them evaluate what they just saw. Okay, so watch this. So he sends them out. Here's what you see. Oh, um, and when he sends them out, one more thing I wanna say is you see this final transition, I think this is worth noting, of how discipleship works. And I wanna give us different ways to think about discipleship. But discipleship is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's getting people ready to do ministry without him physically there, okay? So Dave Ferguson, who pastors a church in um, Chicago, Illinois, he says there's five steps to discipleship. And this is really good. And actually, my wife has taken all of these five steps, and this is how we do parenting now. So it works. Parenting is just a, another word for discipling, okay? So this can work with parenting. But here, here's the five steps. Let me just give it to you. It's I do, you watch, we talk. I know it sounds like caveman, doesn't it? <laughs> I do, you watch, we talk. Okay, step one. <laughs> step two, I do, you help, we talk. You do, I help, we talk. You do, I watch, we talk. You do, someone else watches, you guys talk. And what we're seeing here is so far it's been, I do and you watch and I do and you help and now it's gonna move to they do and Jesus is gonna watch and Jesus is gonna help and Jesus is gonna talk to them about it. But look what he tells them to take. This is interesting. Look at me at verse eight. In verse eight, he says something interesting. 
he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. Um, it's like, well, what's the point of this? Well, some people look back and go, this is the same language when they left, um, when, when back when Moses got the Passover ready and they were leaving Egypt and they were heading, you know, head to, to leave the Egyptians and head into the promised land. Well, fair enough, that's true. But you're like, well, what is, what, what's the application? Is the application that the reason that you're not doing ministry well enough is you don't have a staff and you're not wearing sandals when you're doing it? No. Here's the principle that people have seen in this text. It's a call to a simple lifestyle. Do you see that? Don't take two tunics. Don't take all this extra stuff. It's a call to simplicity, which I don't actually think is, I don't think I've ever talked about it. Now, simplicity is a component of stewardship, obviously. Simplicity is the sister of contentment. A good summary of what Jesus is telling them is, hey, here's an idea. Trust the Lord and travel light. Now, I think a lot of us, I think we, a lot of us know we could live more simple lives than we do. It's not just the things we own. It's the schedules that we have. I mean, it's everything. It's like, man, why are, why are some of us not as effective as we could be in ministry to other people? It's like, well, one is our life is too much about possessing and consuming. I mean, come on, we're Americans. How many things can I possess? How many things can I consume? And we're not gonna, whenever you talk about simplicity, it gets weird. We're not gonna, you know, we're not laying down laws. You have to buy this car. You have to wear these clothes. You have to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but I think it's something worth thinking about because the Bible teaches this principle in Ecclesiastes. The more you have, the more you have to take care of. And what you wanna be as a Christian is I, I want to be as light and I want to be as flexible and I want to be as nimble and I want to be as malleable as I possibly could be. And it kind of works like this. The Christian should have an inward simplicity. I think we can all agree on that. There should be an inward simplicity about your life. And, it's, and it should feel something like this. My life is not about a lot of things. How could it be? My life is about knowing Christ and making him known. My life is about making disciples. I have a job, I know. It fits under that. I have a family, it fits under that. I have a hobby, it fits under that. But the inward simplicity should lead to an outward simplicity. I don't know how to work all this out. I will tell you, Richard Foster, he wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. He puts down as one of the spiritual disciplines of Christians, which no one practices anymore. He calls it the discipline of simplicity. And he gives you 10 things you should do, and I won't give you all 10. I'll give you two that I thought were really helpful. He said, number one, what if you started to buy things not for status, but for function? Maybe you need the five-bedroom house or the six-bedroom house or whatever, but you buy it for function. You don't buy it for status. Buy the jacket. Maybe you want leather seat. I mean, because your kid spills and you want to clean. I get it, okay? Uh, it's like, but you buy things. It's a transition. You don't have the high school mindset. I'm not buying this for status. I'm buying this for function. It's like, well, wow, if we wrestled with that a little bit more, that's a good principle. The second principle we said is, and I thought this was so helpful, learn to give things away. I buy a shirt, I give away a shirt. I buy a pair of pants, I give away a pair of pants. I buy a device, I give away a device. I don't need tons of gadgets and gizmos. I want to travel light and trust the Lord. Now, he tells, him, he tells them the right expectations they should have. Look here. He says this, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you, uh, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So he basically tells you, he gives them the right expectations for what they're going to receive in the world as Christians. People are going to like you and people are going to not, are going to not like you. You're gonna experience persecution and I'll tell you this in a second, people of peace. 
you're going to experience opportunity and open doors on one end, and you're going to experience opposition on the other end. And so he says, here's what you should look for. He says, when you, when you go to a place, he says, you should look for people of peace. People of peace are people who are uniquely open to you, to having a relationship and friendship with you, and are open to the gospel. So when you, when you go to your business or you go to your neighborhood or you're trying to do ministry anywhere, you just go, when I, when I did ministry at Duke, it's like I go into a fraternity house. I'm like, I'm looking for one person who will like me. <laughs> I'm looking for one relationship. I'm looking for one person who's spiritually interested. And I will focus on that person and they have all the networks and they will open up the rest of the world to me. You go, is this a biblical principle? Well, how about the woman at the well? The woman at the well was the person of peace Jesus found in Samaria. She was open, she had conversation, and from there the gospel goes into Samaria. So Jesus says there's people of peace. And then he says, but you see that? He goes, but then he goes, at the same time, he goes, dust your feet off. In other words, you gotta know when you're done with certain people. And you go, well, that sounds kind of rough. Doesn't Jesus love everybody? Doesn't Jesus want everyone to be saved? This is an important principle. Basically, he, he, he says that, here's the principle. We do not create spiritual interest, we discover it. You can't create spiritual interest in people. You gotta discover, where's God already at work? And so what you have to do is you have to keep moving on from people, and that's good for those people. I'll explain. Watch. Um, a couple years ago, I went to India. It's far away, I'll tell you that, if you've never been to India. It's, it's far. It's a 15-hour flight, Newark to Mumbai. We land in Mumbai. I'm there for a few days. And I was seeing all, it was a vision trip. I was seeing all these different areas of ministry. And this one couple said, we want you to come to the bush with us tomorrow. I thought, the bush? I'm already far away, you know, from everything. And they said, well, pack your lunch because there's nowhere to eat there. I'm like, I, I, I'm in India, I don't have a lunch, you know? We figured it out, so I packed a lunch. And, and I go on this trip and, and we drive about an hour and a half and they stop at something that looked like a McDonald's, but it wasn't a McDonald's, okay? It looked like it had the arches, but it was not a McDonald's. And they said, well, you know, this is the last Western toilet. I thought, oh my. So, so then we drive another hour and a half and, and we get out into the bush and they say to us, hey, you're gonna walk out in the bush and um, you're gonna be the first white people these people have ever seen. I thought, where am I? So we go out into the bush and, and, and the guy is walking around again and again and again, this, this missionary, and he's sharing the gospel. And he would go to one house and he would share the gospel and uh, he, would, he did the same thing. He would share the gospel, he would share his testimony, he would wanna tell a biblical story. Those are kind of the three things he would do. And he'd go to a house and they wouldn't be interested and he'd go, okay, I'm leaving. And I was like, That's, you're leaving? because I knew he wasn't coming back to this village. I'm like, that was, that was their one chance? He'd go to another house. And I didn't get it. I actually kind of thought, to be honest with you at first, like, this is kind of, this feels kind of businessy. It kind of feels like if you don't respond right away, I leave. And, and I felt that until about two hours in when we're in this house with this one lady and her family, and she gives her life to Christ. And I didn't, still didn't get it, but I thought, okay, we moved on from all these people and we finally found someone who believes. It wasn't until about a month later, I'm in my office and I get an email from this missionary. He said, I want to tell you that lady that we led to Christ in that house, we've now led her whole family to Christ. They've all been baptized. We've started a church in that house to reach that whole village. And I thought, I get it. You have to move on from certain people because you want to find the person who might long-term be able to minister to all of those people. So what we've seen, guys, is belief in Jesus' hometown. We've seen, or unbelief. We've seen unbelief in... Um, as he sends out disciples. And just let me summarize quickly the unbelief. We won't get to read it all. If you look in verses 14 through 29, it's a strange story of a guy named Herod and a woman named Herodias. And Herod, he's actually the son of King Herod who tries to kill Jesus when he's two years old. Um, Herod marries Herodias 
which is actually his brother's wife. I know you're like, is this West Virginia? No, it was just a it just it was strange. Um, and and uh, and basically, what happens is John the Baptist shows back up, and John the Baptist confronts those two about their lifestyle. And if you read the end of chapter six, and I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon or this week, you see that at the end of the day, John the Baptist confronts the immorality of the of that day, particularly the sexual immorality of the elite culture. Interesting thought. And he ends up getting his head cut off because of it. It's a strange story where at the end, his head is brought in on a platter and given to Herodias, and everybody rejoices, except for Herod, because he was kind of torn on whether he should do it or not. But what that final story shows us is it shows us where unbelief ultimately leads sometimes. Sometimes unbelief is I'm just not familiar and I can't see the divinity of Christ. Sometimes unbelief is, you gotta dust your feet off and leave. Sometimes unbelief gets to the point, we see this mostly in other places, where they actually kill the very messengers of the gospel. But the death of John the Baptist is really, as it ends in chapter six, is really foreshadowing the death of Jesus. Because both John the Baptist and Jesus were innocent, righteous men. Both John the Baptist and Jesus were killed by politicians who didn't, and political people who didn't really wanna kill him. Pontius Pilate didn't, Herod didn't, but did anyway because of fear of man. And they were both killed because of what they taught. And so here's what, and it's kind of a weighty kind of end to our, our morning together, but I just want us to, to understand the culture we live in today and how they view Christianity. Because here's what they said, from 1950 until around 1990, we don't know exactly why things changed around 1990. But from 1950 to 1990, here's what people say. In America, how the average person viewed Christi Christians and Christianity was positively. We think, we think it's because we just fought a world war against communism and atheism and you know, World War II was over and people were rebuilding their families and Billy Graham was filling stadiums. And it's like, if you said you're a Christian, they're like, good for you. Being a Christian was helpful in society. Being a Christian was a good thing and part of being a good citizen. Christian morality was seen as the norm. And then somewhere in the early 90s, partly because of the results of the sexual revolution and other things like that, right around 1992, 1993, 1994, they begin to see that uh, the view of Christians moves from a positive view to a neutral view. And from 1994 until about 2010, 2015, there's a very neutral view of Christians. You wanna be a Christian? Fine. It's one kind of potential way to live your life in a pluralistic, relativistic society. And we'll still take some of your you know, norms, but not all of them. But then in 2013, 14, and 15, there's a huge change in our culture. And we don't fully know why we're trying to figure, you you're looking back on things right in the rear view mirror trying to figure it out. But somewhere in 2012, 13, 14, 15, there becomes a negative view of Christianity. Part of it was the Obergefell decision Part, 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 it's just a lot, to where now Christians, especially, maybe not as much in Winston, we may still be in the neutral view, but the closer you get to a city, the closer you get to a college campus, and the closer you get to a coast, the more people have a negative view of Christianity. And so this isn't a doomsday sermon, this is just a sermon for us to wake up and say, listen, here's what we're gonna do. We are going to continue to honor Jesus Christ. I wanna close by just asking you, where do you need to honor Jesus so that he can work in your life? Let me just ask you, where do you need more of a life of simplicity? As soon as I said it, you know, you knew what it was. 
It was something with what you own. It was something with your schedule. It was something with your work, whatever it was. And then finally, let me just encourage us one last time to live a life of faith. There is, I believe that both faith and fear are contagious. And I think there's nothing more exciting than living a life of faith, seeing the doors God opens and seeing where it takes you. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we thank you for this clear teaching again of Jesus. The clear teaching that we should honor you, Lord, that we want, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to put you first in our finances. We want to put you first in our marriages. We want to put you first in our work life. We want to honor you and experience blessing, Lord. I pray for anyone in here who just needs to start honoring somebody in their life. Needs a, for kids to start respecting parents, for spouses to start respecting one another, and for the home to be a place of honor. Lord, help us as we go out to go out and live lives of clarity and lives of simplicity. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.